Paul had told Timothy that until he comes, regardless, dedicate himself to reading an exhortation into doctrine. That was sort of a standard that Paul had set for Timothy and, if you will, for the churches uh, that Paul was seeing pastored. And, and, and that's what we want to do here. We want to start by just reading the scripture and we'll develop it and give exhortation and doctrine with as well. So we are in our context. We are in a place where God says, here's a song for you to teach the people. God had already won the hand. The, uh, and let me just say before we even go any farther, please don't ever just believe me. Some of you can probably recite this with me. Please don't just believe me. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible have the final say. Don't take my word for it. Take the word for it. We are now roughly about 1400 B.C. Israel has watched its previous generation, all but two or three with Moses, pass away. They had faced the same shore. They had looked at the same battlefront 38 years ago but chose to embrace their fears instead of the promises of God that he would go to battle for them. They had already been removed from Egypt, but they had not entered into the land he had promised them. Please understand this. I mean, some like to draw Canaan as some example of heaven. I have a couple problems with that. One is there's a whole lot of battles to fight there, and Kind of not really thinking that's the heaven I know in Scripture, but, but I get the idea that there is a place God has for us. And it is a place of great fruitfulness where we're established and we're not blown around. Where we're not tossed by everyone's cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting. A place where we're solid on our feet and we live and learn how to delight in His delight. To enjoy a God who rejoices over us with singing. To celebrate a God who takes delight in us. And I don't know if you've ever had anyone ever take delight in you before, but, but please understand something here. God is not like man. And we are fools to try to make him more like us. We would be wiser to be, try to become more like him. So here we are staring at a place that 38 years ago was, a, in essence, one of our greatest defeats. That's a milestone of our own unfaithfulness and weakness. But God's brought them here again because the old man has to die. To go to the place where God really has for you, the old man has to die. But he's got a place for you, and it's great fruitfulness. A place of thriving. And some of you know that. You read scriptures and you read these things. And, and intrinsically you know when it says, for instance, things like, I've come that they would have life and life more abundant. And you know that's not just, I would be healthier physically. Jesus said when he was raised, he would give them a joy. Give us a joy that no one could take. And I look at verses like that and I think, how many people who have embraced Christ in any capacity know what it's like to live abundantly. I mean, to not just breathe and to have your lungs expand and your heart pump blood, but I mean to thrive, to live, not in this place of quiet, dark, obscure desperation of loneliness and, and confusion, but this place 
of being solid on your feet and saying, yes, this is the life. Well, that's on the other side of the Jordan. But what God told is the hands crossed now from Moses to Joshua is that the people themselves will go whoring. They will go chasing after other gods. And we can see this happen. Oh, they'll find themselves in the place where they're so reprehensibly, inexorably against God that they've removed them out of their heart and mind completely. And it sounds a lot like Genesis 6 when it says, every intent of the thoughts of the heart were continually evil all the time. You can't fit one more absolute in that sentence. It was like, before you thought it, it was evil. Before you intended on thinking it, it was evil. Before it was birthed to intend to think about it, it was evil. And we go, that's where it rose. And what we see in this is God says, look, let's do this as a song. God tends to know, by the way, we tend to learn often from songs. This song, and I want to put things into context, the northern kingdom, Israel will ultimately divide after King David's son Solomon's uh, empire. That will be the last of the united empire. And in 721, 722 BC, the northern kingdom will be taken captive by the Assyrian empire. That will be 10 of the 12 tribes. The south will be taken captive in 586, 587 BC by the III. And by the way, the Babylonian empire. And the reason I say that is, if you do the math, God is sitting and talking to them 400 years before the millennia, 1400 B.C. 1400 years on the other side of it, the two southern tribes still exist and won't be taken captive yet. In 800, 900 years later, this is going to come down. So for eight, 900 years, we would be singing this song as a warning. And here's the point. This destruction he's speaking about, if God says it, it's going to happen. It's inevitable and imminent. But it doesn't have to be on your watch. It doesn't have to be on mine. And that's the important point here, is though we see that happen. You know, 50 years ago, I hope you're aware of the fact, 50 years ago, Christians were the ones saying the end of the world is near, and scientists were calling us daft. Now the scientists are saying the end of the world is here, and we're the ones calling them nutters. How did that happen? We should have said it's about time you caught up with us. Now please hear me in this. Sooner or later, this whole thing is going to go down, and there is an expiration date, and none of us can read it. The question is, does it, do you want to be on your watch? When the disciples pull Jesus away, and we're about to get in the text now, but when the disciples pull Jesus away and they ask, when will the end of these things be? When will be the end of the age? What will the sign of these things be? And he gives all of these signs, and we're familiar with them from Matthew 24, where he talks about things like wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and pestilences and all the things that, of course, are very obvious today. And he says, all of these things, are well, they're just signs. They're like birth pains. And if you know anything about giving birth, you know, and of course I only know from the outside of that, is that the pains intensify and get closer together. And that's the idea here. But it's interesting, because at the end of all that, when he speaks about false prophets and false teachers, deceiving even if the, even if the elect, if it were necessary, or if possible, and then he says, because where the carrion is, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now get the idea. What he speaks about is a church, a dead body, that then gets feasted upon by things like false prophets and false teachers, those that feast on dead bodies. He says this is what it's going to look like, where the church has no influence, has no backbone. It's basically a bunch of jellyfish, and that's the kind of idea here. 
Now, please understand, he says it'll be like the days of Sodom and it'll be like the days of Noah. And do you notice in both of those cases, it seems the same. That a world seems completely untouched and uninfluenced by a church that's rather happy to insulate and isolate than influence the world around them. Because we're afraid we'll get rejected. I'd be more concerned about getting rejected by the Lord who's supposed to say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. So understand this song then is a song that's like, do you want this to happen to you? Do you want this destruction to happen to you? So if you will, let's call it a symphony of calamity. Now, as a composer, understand, and having writing symphonies since I was about 11, I get the idea of how things play. And, 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 and traditionally, there are four sections in a soloist. I mean, there's the percussion section, you know, which, by the way, things like piano even fit in because it is a percussive instrument. But let's say for the most part, it's sort of drums and cymbals and those kind of things and bells and such. And then we have the kind of woodwinds, you know, they're kind of like the oboes and the bassoons and the clarinets. They kind of fit as woodwinds because you blow into this piece of wood. It's called a reed. There's the idea. You know, wind, wood, woodwind. Then there's the brass, right? That's your trumpets. And the... I mean, those are the things that are bra- they're brassy and they're, they're loud. And then there's the string section, which usually is kind of the intimate and soft. And, all. and the reason I say that is, is that there are five sections here in regards to these clues, these elements that talk about this erosion to destruction. And I'd like to bring them out in such a way. So read it with me, would you please? This is what it says. Chapter 32, verse 1. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my speech Drop is the rain or my teaching. Drop is the rain and my speech distill as the dew. As raindrops on the tender herb and as showers on the grass. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. In our first three verses, we have, in essence, sort of a musical preamble. And in essence, understand that traditional Hebrew poetry is done by one of two things. And it's the way to teach. Music wasn't to entertain, it was to instruct. And you did it either by what we would call parallelism or you did it by what was called contrast. Parallelism is you recited something in three or four different ways, so the idea is you get a better understanding of it. Contrast, of course, is you say sometimes something is best defined by showing you its opposite. Here we have parallelism. And what he is saying here in the beginning of this is, is what I'm about to share with you, may it fall upon you like rain, like tender dew. Now, some of you have been to Israel with us, and you kind of know what the landscape is like there. Understand rain from the perspective of a floral, fruitful area is a great thing. It provides the nourishment that is necessary for the trees to grow strong, to be established, and to bear forth fruit. But for those who have been around the Jordan Valley, more traditionally, the areas like, for instance, near Engedi, Qumran, when it gets vacant of those things, when it's fruitless and barren, rain becomes a dangerous thing. What rain does now is it collects quickly on the dry ground and becomes a flash flood, tearing up highways, motorways, dropping them sometimes as much as 15 meters, reinventing the landscape, tearing down hills, bringing landslides, Flash floods are not just common, they're expected every year in Israel, in the area of the Jordan Valley. As a matter of fact, one year we were there, and you hike up three different sets of waterfalls, 
by the second one, they had actually chased us out. There were about 32 of us at the time. And they chased us out of the area because they saw rain coming from Jerusalem. We had left, and within a half hour, the area where we were was completely washed away. We would have died had we stayed there. And the reason I say that is as Moses speaks here to the people, if your hunger is to be fruitful, if your desire is to bear forth fruit, this will be a good message. If your life is one that you just want to patch it up and make it look like that, and you want to put astroturf or whatever fake lawn on, but it really isn't real, rain's going to be a dangerous thing. And what this will do probably is blow over you and kind of just wash you away. So that's the decision you want to make before we even get any farther in this. Do you really want to be fruitful in the Lord, or are you just happy not to go to hell? Because he never intended for you just to get a get out of hell free card. And he says, ascribe then to the name of the Lord. And understand, this becomes a fundamental point in all of Scripture. But it unfortunately does not become a fundamental point in regards to the church. And it needs to be. Understand, when God spoke to Pharaoh in Exodus 9, verse 16, he had said, by the way, the reason I raised you up is so that my name would be declared all over the entire earth. So that I'm not a God or a Lord, but I would be the God and the Lord. That's the point. And people need to know it. And by the way, what better way than when people see something that seems invincible go down like your empire? And the Psalms will see that the name of the Lord is blessed, Psalm 113. By the name of the Lord is salvation, Psalm 116. By the name of the Lord is victory, 118. It is our help, and 124. The name of the Lord in Proverbs 18.10 is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The name of the Lord is majestic, Micah 5.6. We give thanks to that name. We pray and anoint in that name. We trust in the name. We praise the name. We love the name of the Lord. It tells us in Isaiah 56.6. We bless those who come in the name of the Lord, Isaiah 118, I'm sorry, um, Psalm 118, and we bless others in that name, Psalm 129. But most importantly, in Joel 2.32, it tells us that whoever calls on that name will be saved. Now, the problem here is that we don't have, that the world doesn't seem to have a problem with generic terms like God. But they have a real problem with the name Jesus. Because Jesus speaks of a specific person Unique and non-negotiable. But listen what it tells us. And this is one of my favorite texts in regards to that. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Nor, and listen, 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 this is what Scripture says, Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's that simple. And I understand that. We go out there and it's like sort of we kind of see someone. Now, if we're one of those kind of people that were a little assertive, I'm, as you might guess, I'm a bit American and so I don't have a problem asserting myself. Someone sneezes. I don't have a problem saying, God bless you, but I have a tendency more to say, Jesus bless you. God bless you doesn't seem to bother most people. But saying, Jesus bless you already. Some people go, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm asking him to bless you. Should that bother you? Well, I don't believe in him. Well, then why does it bother you so much? If I said Santa bless you, would it bother you? It's interesting how that works. And he goes, let this fall because I want to proclaim the name of the Lord. If this is the name by which all heaven and earth and those under the earth will bow, if this is the name that by which all will confess that he's Lord, we better be quick with that name. Because in Acts 4, by the way, and in Acts 5, when the false religious leaders stand against them. They say, look, we don't mind you having your little religious meetings. Just shut up about the name. And that'll be the same today. 
But might I just suggest, represent the name. Bring the name. If you ain't representing, you perpetrating. Bring the name. So when people ask, why is your day so awesome? Don't just go, it's nice. Just say Jesus. Tell them the truth. Why are you not who you used to be? Jesus. It's really a simple answer, isn't it? The only problem is what's inside. So this is what he brings to the table. I want to bring the name of the Lord because I want you to recognize this song isn't, let me list out in 42 verses how stupid and rotten and dumb you are, but rather, let me tell you how amazing God is and how you don't seem to fit into that right now in your attitude. The majority of the verses do not pertain to their behavior, but rather God's, his character. Look at what it says in verse 4. He's our rock. His work is perfect. His ways are just as the God of truth, without injustice, righteous and upright as he. In the simplest sense, nine times in this chapter, by the way, God's going to use this word rock about himself, as Moses speaks. But I'm not in different times in this chapter. Think about what a rock is. It's stable. You know where it is. Giant rocks tend not to move much. And the fact that he's faithful, works are perfect, done in justice, God of truth without injustice. He is solid and faithful. Isn't that what you would want in any friend? Isn't that what you would want in any romance? Isn't that what you would want in a family? Solid and faithful. Understand, I don't know if we know what those words mean anymore. We don't live in a world that's faithful. Even the world that we live on right now is in solid. And we look in the church, oh, that the world would see a difference here. And he starts comparing. Now it's contrast time. Verse 5. They've corrupted themselves. The word means to be spoiled, by the way. There's cut, the word, by the way. And it literally means, in essence, something that gets polluted, something that gets tainted, something that just gets nasty. Notice, it doesn't say they have become spoiled or they have become polluted. But do you notice it says they've corrupted themselves? Have you ever eaten food that you knew was going to tear you up when you ate it? You knew it was going to, it was going to cause trouble. But something inside of you said, I'm going to try it anyway. You ever have anything, and this is the problem of being a guy, is there's this natural curiosity. And when we do these sort of men's advances, by the way, men, let me just say, when we come back, we're going to be gone two weeks in America. When we come back, one of the first things on our agenda is getting the boys out. We're going to get a couple days out, and we're going to get out, and we're going to get on our faces, and like we're going to, we're going to be in the Word, we're going to pray, and we're going to eat lots of really, really terribly spicy food. It's just part of it. It's like you come back with internal tattoos. But there's something about guys. And I, ladies, you can talk about this in whatever way it seems to apply to you, but forgive me for my little universe. But if we're on a sort of on our way, we'll go and stop some convenience store and find the strangest drink we possibly can. Of course, without alcohol. But something that just, what in the world is this? And, and someone will take a sip of it, normally me, and then I'll go, this is the worst thing I've ever tasted. You need to try it. And most of the time, well, there are certain guys, maybe every once in a while, like Jeffrey, but most of the time, guys will be like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then they'll drink it and they'll be like, you're right, this is terrible. And we'll go around like three times because once we've gone around, you've gone, it couldn't have been as bad as I thought it was, right? And we'll do it again. And the reason I say this is there are times where you can choose to put something in you that you know is terrible. You're like, what am I doing to myself? I know what this is going to do. There's nothing positive that's going to come from this except possibly the experience. And the reason I say that is when God starts to speak about these people in this song, the song he's teaching them is like, look at pollution is your choice. 
I mean, there are certainly, you can walk out there, you're going to see things you don't want to see, you're going to hear things you don't want to hear, but you can choose whether you want to tuck that into the category of your heart or dismiss it. They've corrupted themselves. They're not his children. Perverse and crooked generation, that should sound familiar, because it's referred to in several different ways And when Jesus speaks about an evil, adulterous, wicked, adulterous, faithless and perverse generation, seeks a sign, for instance. Matthew 12, Matthew 16, Mark 7, or Mark um, 8. This is the crooked and perverse, twisted, senseless, unwise people. They've corrupted themselves. They're not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Is he not made you and established you? No, wait a minute. If you're kind of reading this, doesn't that kind of seem a little strange? Verses 5, verse verse 6. Verse 5 says, they're not his children. Verse 6, isn't he your father? How is somebody your father, but you're not his children? Well, remember the comparison? We're comparing God's way from man's. God's way is, I'm still your dad. I'm still the one who fathered you. The people's way, you're not my dad. Do you hear the difference? Notice the term purchase here. He bought you. Well, of course, that speaks about something more than just birthing. It speaks about adopting. And understand, even if, and, and this is something we don't have in the Middle East, or we don't have here, but in the Middle Eastern culture, there's a certain kind of adoption you can even do with your own sons, and that's in regards to adopting someone as a firstborn, giving them a specific position, for instance. But the idea here, now you're aware of that, that our family, we have two different children, and they've come from two different sort of DNAs, but they're both my daughters, and I love them just as much. They're both my favorite. But I recognize that God basically did both with us. Did you notice that there was anything required, God did it all? There are three different ways that a man normally proposes to a wife. He buys out their debt, he restores their honor, or he serves them for three and a half years. Did you know Jesus did all of those three to purchase us as his bride? Did you think that through? A three and a half year ministry, bought out our debt and restored our honor. Now, now think this through here, because the idea of it is that God's saying, here's the problem. It's not my side. If we were in counseling and God was on one side of the couch and we were on the other side of the couch and we were the one genuinely and objectively observing this, we would have to say, this really isn't his problem. I mean, the problem is not his. He's not the one creating it. He still wants to be their dad. He still wants to love them. And parental part of this will be fundamental, by the way. It says, listen, remember the days of old. Consider the years of your generations, of many generations. Ask your father and he'll show you. Your elders and they will tell you when the Lord divided their inheritance. Stop. Don't miss the point here that this hasn't happened yet. This whole dividing the land is what's going to happen in the book of Joshua. He goes, this is, you're going to look back on something that we haven't even, incur, we haven't even encountered yet. Hundreds and hundreds of years from now, you're going to look back at this and go, look at, I just want you to know, before this ever happened. Now please Please, please hear me on this. Here's the difference between us and him in regards to relationships. When we enter into a relationship, we really don't know everything about the person. To be honest, they don't know everything about themselves. Much of it will be things we'll encourage, we'll, we'll, we'll evolve in, we'll grow in, we'll encounter throughout the time we live life. And so what can happen is you can fall in love with somebody and then they can grow to become somebody very different. Now, chances are you were part of that recipe. 
And we look and go, now who is this person now? But when God enters into a relationship with us, he knows everything. You go, well, then why would he even do it? Why would God get into this relationship? And then all of these things, because I'm thinking like me. Why would I want to get, if I got into a relationship and I realized these crazy things were going to happen, like some of the things I've done against my God, man, I wouldn't have gotten into the relationship in the first place. But when I encounter those moments where I see my own horrible heart, God's like, I want to remind you, that's not the end either. It's like, why would God actually call Peter and then watch Peter fall? Because that wasn't the end of the story either. Peter would be restored and strengthen his brothers. You go, how could God call such an individual and then watch those dumb things that they've done? And you've seen some pretty horrible situations in the last decade here. Because it's still not the end of the story. So he goes, look, I want you to look back at this. There'll be a day you're going to look back. And this is what it says, verse 8. The Most High divided their inheritance to the nations. He separated the sons of Adam. He set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. But the Lord, by the way, the Lord's portion is his people. God's like, all I really want is you. That's all. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land, in a wasteland, in a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest, he hovers over his young. He was a hovering parent, ladies. And he spread out his wings, taking them up, carrying them on his wings. So the Lord alone led him. There was no foreign God with him. He made him ride in the heights of the earth that he might eat the produce of the field and he made him draw honey from the rock, oil from the flinty rock, curds from the cattle, the milk of the flock with the fat of the lambs, the rams and the breed of Bashan, the goats, choicest wheat, they drank wine, the blood of grapes. God said, can I just show you my history? Faultlessly faithful, providing perfectly, surrounding safely, intensely intimate. He goes, That's who I am. Isn't it great news? Can I just give you the greatest news? That he doesn't change. Aren't you thankful he's not us? Wouldn't you have bailed on us by now? It's like I still am faithful, faultlessly faithful. I still provide perfectly if you'll let me. I'll still surround you safely if you'll come into my protection. If you'll come under my wing. I'm still intensely intimate if you're willing to turn your heart to me. I've never changed my mind because I know the end of this. You don't. But you could see God saying, well, what more would I need to do? What more do I need to do to prove to you that I love you? All this emptiness you experience, all this grief and despair, Isn't it just because there's a spot for God and he's not there for it? Because you're not putting him, you're not allowing him the space he created for himself in you? It's like, I so desperately want to be the thing that makes everything make sense in your life. Please, look at the history of my encounter with people. And now, the symphony begins. Verse 15. Jeshurun grew fat. Yeshurun, by the way, simply means upright, declared, established. Grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, you grew thick, you were obese. 
Then he forsook God who made him, scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation, provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abomination they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. To gods they did not know. Oh, new gods, new arrivals that their fathers did not fear. Oh, if the rock that begot you, you were unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. And when the Lord saw it, he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. He said, I'll hide my face from them and see their end. Because I see that they're a perverse generation. Children in whom is no faith. They provoke me to jealousy, but what is not God? And they've moved me to anger by their foolish idols. So I'll provoke them to jealousy by what is not a nation. And I'll move them to anger by a foolish nation. Many of you are familiar with that text because it's quoted in Romans chapters 10 and 11 and 1 Corinthians 10 about the reason why God even brings in those who aren't Jewish into all of this. One of the benefits is to see if there's anything left in their heart. And please hear me on this. It's one of the things I look at. When I see some guy or some gal and they're like, it's over. You know, I was going out with her, but it's over. One of the first places where you can really see whether that's true or not is in the face of jealousy. When it's completely over and the person they're looking at is with someone else and they are completely uncaring about it, well, that's a different story. But if there is a spark of interest still in there, something still attached, there will be jealousy that will be attached to it. But it's interesting is this isn't even a, a lover's jealousy. It's a father's jealousy. Most people don't even realize there is such a thing. But follow me on this. Listen, listen, listen. This is how it starts, okay? This is what it starts to look like. It starts to look like we start the symphony with the percussion. And the percussion, and again, it's just a five-point thing. The percussion, in essence, is the place where they started this thing. And the place where they started this, if you think about it, is a simple word, and that's prosperity. And, and understand, this is funny because we kind of look for that. It's like some people even go to church where that's the primary point is to teach prosperity. But if you think that the best thing that God has to offer you is money, you are ripping yourself off. I mean, I'd hate to think that I, you know, that my daughters would look and say, oh, you adopted me so I could get money from you. I mean, they're going to get money from me, often much more than I intend, but you get the idea. So understand, here's the idea. So it starts with a beat. But the problem with a beat is a beat becomes, in essence, the ground from which everything else sits upon. So the percussion starts to lay this groove. But if you know anything about the way drums work, as it gets, starts to speed up, it loses the groove. There's a place where you're kind of, kind of moving with it, but as it speeds up, you lose that groove because what's happening now is that it becomes too complicated. And this often happens in regards to when God starts to bless us, the moment we take our eyes off of our blesser for the blessing, things become extremely complicated because now we try to protect what he's given us instead of follow the one who wants to protect us. Now, God never says that, that sort of, this kind of prosperity is a bad thing, but what he does say is that loving it is. And he wants to bless, but he just doesn't want to bless us in a way that we turn our hearts away from him. And there's our problem. So the beat starts. But have you seen this? The moment people sort of fall into it, it really corrupts people. And again, I remind you, he says you've polluted yourself. Fame, power, fortune, it pollutes people. I've seen really sane people become self-consumed lunatics. They become pretentious and paranoid. I've watched the best of friends become enemies and competitors because somewhere when you get to that place, all you think about is yourself. It becomes a very lonely universe. And he goes, look it, I've given you everything. 
whether it was the meat or the fat or the fleece or whether it was the ground and the fruitfulness or the grapes or the wheat, whatever it was, I gave it to you and you were safe and you were blessed. But the problem was is that you forgot, and we're going to see here, that though that beat is the case, that we start to forget about the beat when everything starts to get added. And I remind you, it's the conductor who's supposed to be setting this thing. And now our heart starts to match the beat. And some of you are familiar with that because some of you are familiar with things like 120 BPM. There gets a point where if you're working out and you're listening to music, they accelerate it to the place where there's 120 beats per minute because that is the point. If your heart runs at that rate, it starts to burn calories. And understand, as the beat starts to increase, our heart tends to increase with it. They do this in movies for that purpose. And so here's the beginning of it. It starts with prosperity. But if that were the end of it and we were just in love with God and he was blessing us, have you ever had God bless you so much that you're just going, oh, God, you're just going to need to stop because I can't even catalog all the ways you're blessing me right now. And then I look back and think, why did I tell him to stop? He's like, I just want to look at, I want to give you everything. I just don't want to give you anything that takes you away from me because the point of my heart is you're my treasure. You're the thing I love. And why would I want to not bless that? But why would I want to do anything that takes you away from that? I'll give you it all in whatever manner. And it's like, you know, the reason why God doesn't give us much sometimes is because we can't even be trusted with little. But notice the second thing now as we add in our second section. This is in verse 15. Yes, you grew fat. You kicked. You grew fat and you grew thick and you're obese. Now understand, fat in some cultures, there are many African cultures, it's one of the kindest things you can say. You look fat. Then you come here and it's like the word, I mean, people are on bridges because you've told them that. But did you notice God went beyond all of that to the point of fat, thick, and then obese? By the way, those are words that are progressive. Obese is, by the way, in no country is that actually a compliment. The idea of it is, oh, you're looking like Jabba the Hutt today. You know, you look like a giant, you know, jello mold is the idea. It's like, you know, when you start jumping up and most of you still stays until you land and then it goes up after you, you know something's wrong. As we started with our first section of percussion with this prosperity, the second then section is obesity. Now understand what obesity is. What obesity is, is you're taking more in than you exercise. Isn't that the way that works? And this is why, as I'm praying about this, I'm walking with the Lord, because understand, this week, man, I've been brought to tears as I'm looking at this, saying, God, please don't let this be my song. And I think, well, this is the brass, because the brass sounds like an auto horn that says, "Uh, uh, let's get moving. How many times are we out here in the city and we hear the pace? That's the percussion, if you will. The car is driving by and it's the buses and the people, hey, and all hey, go, and we hear all this and it's sort of like the basic tempo of how things go. And then somewhere in your, and you know what that means, that whoever's in front of that guy is apparently not going at the pace that the guy honking the horn thinks he should go at. And I get the idea here that as God sort of adds our second section, now the brass steps in and they're like, and they're saying, get moving. You know more than your feet do. Your feet are completely paupers in faith, but your brains can spout doctrine so well, just like what the Lord told the Ephesian church in, in Revelation 2. When he says, man, you can smell a phony. You know that stuff, but you've left your first love. It's James who says, you know, don't just hear this stuff. Do what it says. 
I remember years ago, back when I was in California, I had this dream. And it isn't like I remember most of my dreams, but this is one of those that I still to this day still haunts me. I coached for several sports, but in this particular dream, that was my setting. I was standing in a locker room with a whiteboard behind me, and I've got my, my marker in my hand, my Sharpie. And before me are people in various states of dress. Some of them look like they're completely ready for the game, for the match. Some others really look like they, don't, they just came off the street and they really don't know what they're doing there. Some are kind of just kind of picking their nose and others are like, yeah. And I'm looking at them and I'm laying out X's and O's and I'm like, this is okay, this is what we're going to do and this is what, and everyone's nodding. And it's in the moment I kind of raise the, the, the Sharpie, everyone's drawn in. Kind of like you look right now. And they're kind of nodding. And I'm like, all right, ready? And this is, and this is what you're going to do because this is what, you know, this is your position. We're going to pull you out this. And we're going to take this. And I want you to block. And I want you to step forward. And I want you to. And everyone's like, yeah, are we ready? Yeah. And we run out. And everyone runs out and takes a seat. And I'm standing in the field and I'm looking going, where is everybody? Did they forget this was actually that the, that, that was to play? So they could agree. They, they could tell you the plays. Oh, they knew the plays. But they, they, they grasped, appearingly, they grasped the strategies. The part that didn't connect was the part that they were actually part of the team. Or at least part of the team that played. But there are no red shirts here. Every one of you are called to it. You know what happens when we just start to take in and we don't seek to exercise? We don't want God to make change in our life. We become obese. And we can hear the horns coming. And those horns are saying, let's get moving. Look, this isn't a guilt trip. This is being a coach saying, let's get out there. Do you know what it's like to be part of someone's testimony to score a goal? Do you know what it's like to be part of that play and to assist? There's nothing like it. But you will never get that on the bench. And here's the warning. The difference between life and any other game is that you get tackled on the bench in life. So if you're going to wind up with the grass strains and the cuts and the bruises anyways, why not at least be out there doing something when it happens? Do you really want to tell people I was sitting on the bench and somebody fell into me and that's why I got this mark? Is there somebody you work with? Somebody you dance with? Somebody you teach with? Somebody that you walk with? that you could at least just start by saying, hey, you know what? I love Jesus. And if you want to know more, just ask me. You're like, well, what if I can't answer every one of their questions? Can you answer the most important? Who saved you? Don't get caught up in the minutia of things that are less important. Now, please hear me on this. As the trumpets come in, it starts to sound really noisy. Because what we have is we have this rhythm that's accelerating and getting louder. We have these trumpets. There's nothing that seems cordant here. Everything kind of just starts to sound like a traffic accident. And all we've done up to this point is that God blessed us and we became obese with it. And it moves beyond that. And by the way, what I've noticed according to this, it seems like the only exercise we're getting is kicking at God. Did you notice that in the verse? He says, you grew obese, you kicked at me. Get off, get away. Our third section then in verse 15, it says, Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. Can you say, Natash. Now try it with me. This is Hebrew, so you can't say it. Natash. Natash, by the way, means to abandon. How about the word, 
Navel. Navel is the word that means to wander, to fade away. And these are the words that he uses here for forsaking and scornfully esteeming. As where we started with our first section of prosperity, and our second section of obesity, our third section now is apostasy. All apostasy means, apostesos, means to stand out, to stand out from where you belong. It's a military term, by the way. There's certain men, they have their posts. Any other place is not a good place for him to be when he needs to be at his post. It is the danger not only of the individual, but of the entire platoon if he's not where he belongs. And that's the word apostasy. And look at what it says. It says that you forsook God. Did you notice God didn't leave you? Even though you had grown obese, even though you kicked at God, he still didn't leave. And I look at this and I think of the woodwinds as our third section. Because what the woodwinds are often is very flippant like a breeze. They have no boundaries like a breeze. No definition. You don't know where they came from. You don't know where they're going. There's no commitment. There's no roots like a flitting sparrow. It just kind of bounces off. It never really seems to land. And that's often the way you see the woodwinds. And can I say that's what he says. Let me take, why don't we take a look at our hearts for a moment. Do you see the woodwinds in your heart? The thing where it's just and it just never really stops, never really lands. This beat's happening, and because God's blessing you so much, these horns are saying you should get moving, and they're blowing. And even though they're blowing, you're kind of not listening about getting going. You're just happy to be obese. And then what happens is, though you're big and lethargic, you'll never settle down into the arms of God. And so what happens here? He goes, "Look at you're leaving me. You're wandering everywhere instead of falling into my arms and walking with me, following me." you're too busy trying to figure out how to do this yourself and trying to make you the boss of everything. And yet he calls himself here, notice, I'm the one who made you. Shouldn't you follow me? I know how you work better than you know how you work. I am the rock of your salvation. I am stable to save. You can't see it because you're busy trying to save yourself over the mess you got into instead of call out to me. Oh, so we started with prosperity. We worked to obesity. We got ourselves to apostasy. And then we get to verse 16. In verse 16, it says they provoked him to jealousy. The foreign gods. Where does it always go from apostasy but to adultery? It's like, I love you. I've never run out on you. I've given you no reason to leave. But the moment you blow away, you blow into someone else's arms and you know it. And yet you still think I'm going to applaud you for that. You think I'm going to be okay with that. But if I were okay with it, then I wouldn't have loved you. I can't possibly enjoy you in the arms of someone else when I created you to be with me. You know what's interesting is, is as I was praying through this in my own heart, please understand this isn't like, oh, God, teach me how to teach this, but rather, God, show my own heart in this. You know, of course, the big issue in our lives over the last six months has been immigration. What I found interesting is that as I'm praying about it in my own life, I realize that the problem isn't immigration. It's immigration without integration. People coming in, and this is why, you know, decide this. Let me make clear, this is my opinion. But at least this is how I believe it's shown to me. Is we don't have a definitive culture anymore. We did have a definitive culture where God was supposed to be the Lord. He was supposed to be the king of the kings, was the idea. There was a church that was supposed to sit under that leadership. 
And we were, there was a time when we sent out to the rest of the world evangelists that loved God and really were clear on the name of Jesus Christ. And if you were going to come in here, that was the house rules. Now, if you were going to abide by it, at least you had to respect it. And today people kind of come in and they're just kind of, we don't even know what we are anymore here. So what happens is, because we don't have a definitive anything, we don't have a definitive standard anything other than the one word we use, tolerance, which is the way of saying, come on in, but be anything but what we are, because we don't even know what we are. And I'm not talking about the country now, I'm talking about the church. Because the church was supposed to be that Jesus was the king of kings. And there was no superstars. There were no, you know, megachurch pastors that somehow God, like, had a hotline with, you know. It was like, we kind of call him, we're on a switchboard, where God's like, please hold. Oh, hold on, Billy, how's it going? I mean, this isn't what God's doing. And all of a sudden it becomes like, you know, this sort of Nicolaitan thing where there's like sort of this group of experts and then everybody else who watches and Christianity become a spectator sport instead of a place where everyone just said, let's just go out and make a difference. Let's go love people and reach out to people. Though That's the way it's supposed to be. So we hire really smart people and then we go, well, I can't do that. I'll never go out and evangelize now because I'm too stupid to do that. Because we think it's about apologizing instead of actually going on the offense and saying the gospel of Jesus Christ is still the power of God to salvation for anyone who believes. And the Holy Spirit is still the one who convicts. And he who plants and waters, we're just nobodies who get the privilege of throwing out seed and watching God bring a harvest. I love that. If I thought it was anything else, I wouldn't be in this position. I love the fact that this is the way God calls it to. But here's the unfortunate part. Now what happens is you start to wander from all of that. You're going to be in the arms of another. And this is the string section. And here's the problem with the string section. Some of the most beautiful music is strings. You could go to St. Martin on the Fields and listen to Vivaldi. And it's just like listening to it's like the, the equivalent of drinking chocolate with your ears. But then, you can take those same instruments and hand them in the hands of Bernard Herman. Perhaps you're unfamiliar with him. He's the one who wrote the music for Psycho. Same instruments, very different sound. You could put those in the hands of John Williams and it could become beautiful or the theme from Jaws. And here's the point. The instruments were not the problem, it was the music. Now, I wouldn't want to be like, oh, can you imagine right in the middle of a Valdi piece? It just doesn't work. But understand, the idea of it is there's something intimate that can happen where you're going, oh, this is like being in love. And then you listen to this and go, that is not like being in love. Or if you've been in that kind of love, that ain't love. That's a relationship that prayerfully is behind you. And here's the point, is that as this symphony starts to get tighter and tighter, it becomes more and more discordant because the only thing that really puts it all to peace, peace, is Jesus Christ. He's the peace because he's the conductor. And if you remove the conductor and just tell everyone, just play what you want, how does that not sound like chaos and anarchy? And some of you, if not all of us, we know it in our hearts. We know that feeling. We look and we go, oh, this hurts. This is terrible. And it's gnarly and twisted. And it's like that which is supposed to be clear and straight is like a ball of twine. It's like worse. It's like headphones I can't get untied by the time I get off the train. 
And I look and I realize, God's like, this is not what it's supposed to be, but this is the song of calamity now. I look at that and I think, is this what God really intended? And it goes one step beyond. So hear me. It was prosperity, but that prosperity moved to obesity. And that obesity moved then to apostasy. And that apostasy moved to adultery. But ultimately, that adultery moves to apathy. And the apathy now is the soloist. The soloist who is alone but unconcerned. They're emancipated at this point from any parental chorus. They demand to lead and they're constantly at war with the conductor because they think they should run it. And notice what it says here. In verse, 9, verse 18, and please understand, this is the verse that got me because I'm a dad. And it says, of the rock who begot you, you were unmindful. The word for unmindful here, by the way, is the word shayach. Could you say shayach? Shayach means to choose, to forget, to remove from mind. It would be as if your brain had a contact list and you were removing the contact from your brain. But it was this word, forgotten. Is the word shayach. Can you say shayach? Shayach means to cease to care. The word for forgotten here. And that wasn't the hardest part for me. In verse 18, he says, who begot you? This rock, remember, stable. Because understand at this point, everything's chaotic because it's going everywhere but, but good. Because the only thing's stable. Do you see how he keeps bringing you back to the fact that he's the rock? You're in a tornado of a mess because you're not on the rock. You're drifting around because you're not on the rock. You ever go swimming and you get really tired and all you really want at that point is to make sure your feet find ground sooner or later? And you're out in the ocean and surfing for, well, I've like other times I've been surfing for hours and I'm just tired. And I can't, at this point, I had once where you have a little leash that you tie to your, to your uh, ankle. And I got hit by this big, beautiful wave. Unfortunately, instead of riding it, it decided to ride me. And it ripped my leash actually tore my leash in half. So I can't even find my board. It's broken in half and it's two different places and I'm kind of looking around for it. And at this point, all I really want is to go in and I'm just, and I'm so tired. I'm just trying to get air. And I'm just, and, and there was, and I'm like, Lord, I, 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 this would be a really crazy way to die right now. And I'm not melodramatic. I'm like, I just would really like, and just at that moment, I did my feet down and there's a rock sticking out of the ground, big, big rock. And I know at that moment, I'm going to be all right. I'm, I'm probably a half a mile out, but there's this rock called Mouse Rock, and I was like, just found the edge of it. And because I found the edge of it, I was able to sort of stand on it long enough to catch my breath, my heart drop a bit, and get to shore where I needed to be. He's like, man, I'm, the reason you're, you're so tossed around like this is because you left the rock. And there's the problem. Here's, the, listen, this term for fathered, doesn't mean that he donated DNA. The term is the term, and this will be an easy one to remember. Hul, like, and that's so hul. So say hul. Hul is the word that means to twist or to whirl or to dance. And that's the word he defines as father here. But I get it. 
It's not a dad, it's a daddy. And I know that moment where you pick up your kids and you just twirl them around until you want to vomit, but they keep saying again because they seem to somehow not have that problem. I'm like, you're farther out on this. How is this that you're not feeling this? I'm like ready to drop. You know, I don't even know which way is ground. But, but they're like, please do it again, do it again. And you're just you're, you're twirling them and you're holding them and you're loving them and you're dancing with them. This is daddy. And please understand, this is God speaking. This is God speaking. He's like, this is who I am. I burst you, literally brought you forth in pain like a mother. So again, I felt that pain as you were being born. I know that pain, but it was okay because it was you at the other side of it. And then I danced with you, and I loved you, and I held you strong so you could feel safe. And he goes, where are you now? What are you doing? What could possibly, what do you think is going to be out there that's better than that? I've been the rock in the birthing. I've been the rock in the fathering. I've been the rock in my provision. I've been the rock in my caring. I've been the rock in my protection. I've always been stable and faithful. Do you really think you can leave me and find that better somewhere else? Sing this to your kids. So they know. Because they may not get it now. You're still living off of manna. I'm still pulling water out for you to drink. Okay, now you're at the Jordan. You can drink that. I'm still a pillar you can see in the sky. And I come down and speak with you right there, Moses, right there at the tabernacle. But man, not everyone's going to have this. You're going to cross the Jordan. That pillar's not going to be there anymore. You won't have to live on manna. You won't have to go find water in a rock. You'll get so comfortable in the blessing that I gave you because I love you. Because I love you so much. You'll get obese because you're going to turn from me. But it isn't because I stopped. And then you'll wander. And I hear the woodwinds come in. And then you'll just run off into the arms of somebody so weak and using you. I hear the strings get discordant and uncomfortable. So you're there by yourself and you feel insulated and isolated and alone and fearful. And you're there. And somehow the funniest part is at that moment you're like, God, where are you? Can you see God? What? Where am I? Adam, where are you right now? Son, Get away from the pig slop and come home, please. Because the moment you turn, I'm running. The only time in Scripture where God runs, and he runs to his boy. And I think God's like, do you get the song? But let me tell you another song. Because as I surrender to the Lord, that song changes. And the song changes to one that is built on the rock. And now all of a sudden, we become people into rock music. Solid. Sure. And now it's like, God, don't let my heart wander. Give me an appetite for your menu. 
Let me fall into your arms and know that better than any other embrace I could ever desire. So let's wrap this up. It's a father's jealousy that Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians 11 when he says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I could present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Who presents a girl as a chaste virgin? It's the father who does that. Paul had a father's jealousy for the Corinthians. And the reason I say that is when Oprah says, I don't want to worship a God that gets jealous, she has no idea what a loving father would be like then. I'm like, I'm just jealous for God for you. I just want you to have the best. And it hurts me to see, because I can't be jealous of something I don't want. So a fire is kindled. It will burn to the lowest hell, verse 22. Consume the earth with her increase. I'll heap disasters. I'll spend my arrows. And I think of how many times throughout Scripture, Second Samuel 2, Second Kings 13, Zechariah 9, where God speaks about his arrows going forth like lightning and his judgments. They'll be wasted, devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction. I will send against them the teeth of beasts, the poison of serpents of the dust, the sword will destroy on the outside, terror from within, young man and virgin, nursing child and man of gray hairs. I would have said I'd have dashed them to pieces. I will make the memory of them cease from among men had I not feared the wrath of the enemy. When God fears the wrath of the enemy, what God is seeing the bigness of, that's the term here, Yare. Is his reputation and how important that is. The very thing Moses keeps bringing up. I don't want the rest of the world to think I don't love them. And you're my example. Lest their adversaries should actually misunderstand. Lest they should say our hand is high and the Lord hasn't done this. They're a nation void of counsel. Nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise that they'd understand this. And that they would consider their latter end. How could one chase a thousand put the... Put how, in two to ten thousand to flight, unless the rock had sold them. Notice the rock again. The Lord had surrendered them. For their rock is not like our rock. The point. Even our enemies themselves being judges. Their vine is the vine of Sodom. The fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are full of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is poison of serpents, cruel venom of cobras. Is this not laid in store with me, sealed up among my treasures? Vengeance is mine, and I will recompense. recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time. They have calamities at hand, and these things come to hasten upon them. The question is, do you want them now? Oh, God, change me. Let my heart be so yours that the new song that David speaks about when he says, you put a new song in my heart. I was in a pit, but you lifted me up and set me on the rock, and you put a new song in my heart. Praises to God. That's my heart's desire like Psalm 40. For the Lord will judge his people, and have, but listen, and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone. Sometimes what the Lord wants to do is rescue you, but you're too busy fighting him. He goes, I'll wait. You're like, but I might die. God's like, I can raise the dead. You don't intimidate me. Where is this? There's none remaining. Bond or free. He will say, well, where are your gods now? Where's that rock that you sought refuge? Who ate the fat of their sacrifices, drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your refuge. But now you need to see this, that I, even I, am he. There is no God beside me. I kill, but I also make alive. I wound, but I also heal. There isn't anyone who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven and I say as I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. 
But Gentiles, why don't you rejoice with his people? Because he will avenge the blood of his servants, render vengeance to his adversaries, and provide atonement for the hand of his people. As we bring this to close, because the last part God says, Moses, you need to die. We'll pick that up tomorrow. I mean, next Sunday. Here's a look at There's going to be two sides to this. There's vengeance or there's atonement. Which side do you want? On one side, the vengeance will be for those who have left. It even speaks about that as a nation. Turn to the darkest hell for those for nations that forget their God. But on the other side of it is atonement for the son who comes home. For the gomer who had run off to a prostitution but realizes somehow in that bought back for half the price of a slave. For the publican who falls to his knees and beats his breast and says, God, forgive me, sinner that I am. It tells us, for he who seeks to cover his sin will not prosper. But whoever confesses it and forsakes it will find mercy. And if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know why he's faithful? Because he is the rock. So, do we want our lives to be the symphony of calamity? Or do we want it to be the one built on the rock? Where it is stable. Where it's peaceful. And the beat is the beat of our hearts and his together. Where the beauty of the brass is just the declaration. Because those same horns declare the goodness of victory. Where the winds become, the woodwinds, become that which is laughter like a child set free. Where the strings become the strings of an intimate moment of beautiful peace between you and your God. And you realize there's no soloist at all. Just the conductor. God so loved you, he'd rather die than live without you. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross so that not just some, not just the things you've known already, but every one of your horrible, rotten, nasty sins and filthy thoughts and so forth, and mine too, could be paid for. His horrible, torturous death was to convince us that there would be no sin he wouldn't have paid for. And his resurrection showed us there's a new life, a life that puts to death the old song and creates a new one now. A song of praise to our God, a song of deliverance, as he tells us. As we go to prayer, if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, you have that opportunity today. We're going to pray, and as we pray, you'll have the opportunity to simply say yes. If you have said yes to Jesus, can I just ask you today, is there any, how many people within an orchestra have to play the wrong thing for this thing not to sound good? One. And we wonder sometimes why it's like, you know, it's sort of like you've got one guy over here and he's like blowing a trumpet, but he doesn't, or he's that guy that's sort of near Covent Garden. He's picked up the cone, the orange cone. You've heard that? And he's kind of going off on his thing and you kind of go, but you don't understand. I've checked my percussion. Things are good. You know, you don't understand. I've checked the strings. Everything seems good. Why does it still seem so messed up? Because if there's one area that God's highlighting right now in your heart and mind, can I, can I remind you, it starts with this. I love you. Let me love you. That's where it starts. 
Because I've noticed once that happens and you hand the baton to the proper conductor, everything seems to fall into line. He wrote the piece. He knows how it goes. And he wants to turn you into a masterpiece. The only thing that's left is willing to sit in where you belong and follow him. Well, pray with me, would you please? Lord, I thank you for this beautiful text. I recognize, Lord, in it. But our lives right now, they may be discordant, but they shouldn't be discordant because of a circumstance. There will always be things around. The same way that if we were listening to a beautiful piece of music, God, things could be happening outside the building. We just wouldn't be aware of them or hear them yet because we're consumed with the beautiful moment. And I pray that right now, Lord, that we would be so consumed in your grace, so engulfed in your presence, that that the circumstances that surround our life right now wouldn't make their way into some discordant place, some form of cacophonic place in our hearts that make things uncomfortable and and ugly and unpleasant when you've intended, Lord, for for our life to be a love song. But we confess to you, Lord, that sometimes we have this tendency, this appetite to wander to wander off the page, thinking somehow we could vamp off of your music and somehow think that, that everyone else should just follow us now. But we recognize that road is the road that leads to the arms of something else that is in competition with you, and that should never be. I recognize unless I hand you the baton, truth be told, my life will always be a mess. And I'll blame it on circumstances. I'll blame it on my past. I'll blame it on my physical weaknesses or whatever. But I won't really address the cause because I'll be enough to think that the symptoms will be enough to keep people at bay from prodding farther. But the cause is that I was created for intimacy with you. And unless I allow that in my life, there will never be complete peace. So, Lord, put this music back where it belongs. May the beat be a beat that is completely in sync with your heartbeat. Please. May the brass be to declare your victory. May the winds be the joy and laughter that comes, as you say in Psalm 1611, at your presence is the fullness of joy where the circumstances do not have bearing on my, on my being because your joy overcomes. Where the strings testify of an open, loving, intimate, surrendered heart to a God who only loves me. Where my life is one that it would be lived like a beautiful beautiful love song before you. And I pray that if there be any within the sound of this voice who have not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, as I know we've gone late, but Lord, let this happen. There be anyone who wants to say yes, and you know, I don't even have to convince you that the Holy Spirit will be working on you right now to say, do you want to say yes to this love? I paid your price at the cross. 
I rose again to give you new life. And I just want you to say yes to me. And if that's you, I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to give a confident, resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree, let that be my prayer now. So be it in my life. And this is it. God, I can't hide from you. I'm empty. I'm a mess. But you want me and you love me and you paid my price at the cross. Just like your scripture promised, Jesus died on that cross for my guilt, my shame. And after being buried, just like Scripture promised, He rose again on the third day to give me a brand new life that's no longer covered in that shame, controlled by my own sin, but now free to take your love and live in the freedom of that love. And so I say yes, confessing Jesus as my Savior at the cross and as my Lord as His resurrection. I say yes to you and I say, please fill these holes in my life. Please give me your peace. Be my peace. Be my joy. And Lord, consume me in that love that you promised me to have. I just say yes to you now. Have me. In Jesus' name. And if that is your prayer today, I ask you to say, Amen. Lord, I pray for every person who said yes to you today, that you would cement in that decision. Show them now the changes you're going to make in their life. Transform them, I pray. Let them hear all the angels of you in heaven rejoicing over that choice. And I pray for every one of us now that you make us the love song you intend. In Jesus' name, amen.